Vaughn, that's a blessing. He hideth my soul. Let's take our Bibles and stand, please. Hebrews chapter 4, the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I ask our members to look around. Could you share your Bible with someone who doesn't have it? Help them to find their place in this very, very wonderful passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 this morning. And I wish I could, I could preach about the whole chapter. It's just such an encouraging chapter. We'll do our best to try to get you out here at a good time and so that we, we just be a blessing to you this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. T- say amen if you're there. Amen. All right. Verse 14. Listen very carefully as we read. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, I was thinking about different titles for this message. And if you study the context of the passage, it almost means this. We would say this in our English or Western, Western way of thinking. Uh, you can go to God in the nick of time. Or God is there for you in the nick of time. And that basically means at the right moment, God is there for you. And uh, you'll notice here, verse 16 is an invitation to us. And I want to draw your attention to two little simple words there this morning that God would speak to our hearts about. He says in verse 16, come boldly. And I want to encourage you this morning as we continue our series on prayer about this matter of coming boldly before the Lord. And may God speak to our hearts today and give us a word of instruction. Maybe for some going through some time of difficulty, this would be a time of comfort and help for your life. Let's pray right now. Father, we are thankful that your mercies are new every morning. I'm thinking about uh, what Psalms 119 verse 156 says when David, the the psalmist said, Thy tender mercies are great. And uh, Lord, we we thank you for that. And and, uh, I was thinking about the psalmist as he talked about several times in that same passage how he cried many times. He just was crying to the Lord and God, how the tears of the saints are very precious before God. And God, that you even record our, you receive our tears in a bottle and they're recorded in your book. And God, uh, uh, what you told Hezekiah when he was languishing on the bed, I, I've heard thy prayer and I've seen thy tears. And God, thank you for some here this morning who are suffering, God, who are going through sorrows and difficulties that you know all about it today. Thank you for your grace, which is God innumerable. Your grace, which God is always sufficient. Thank you for your grace, which is always on time. Thank you for your grace, which saves. Thank you for your grace to serve. But thank you today for grace that is sufficient for our needs. And today, as we consider the context of this passage in prayer and God, our Christian life, would you help us today to obey you and help us today to just catch your heart? And would you help me, Lord, in working past uh, my inadequacies and maybe more than anything else that your precious people of Heritage Baptist Church and our guests and visitors here today, number one, that they would sense your love for them. Number two, Lord, I pray and ask that they would sense your direction for their lives and the need for us to have direction and guide us. The Bible says we're to pray to order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. And God, today I pray you'll strengthen and bolster every faith that's found here today. May you give us spiritual breakthroughs that 
we so desperately need for this moment. And may God, you be glorified today through the salvation of sinners. May you be glorified today and Christians just deciding today they'll stand up for Jesus. And may you be glorified today right in the middle of the summer of just saying for your people that you just you're, there's something special you want us to do that will glorify and please you. Take charge of the remaining of the 30, 40 minutes now of this service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you new to the church, we've been on a series since the beginning of June on the subject of prayer. And if you've read through your Bible or portions of your Bible, you know that prayer is an ongoing subject from Genesis all the way through Revelation. It, it is an inexhaustible subject. There's nobody in this room. There's nobody that's preceded you and me. There's nobody that will follow you and me. There's no preacher. There's no evangelist. There's no missionary. There's no Christian who's mastered everything there is about prayer. And Jesus, as he was praying one day out in the garden, his disciples came and they were somewhat in awe and somewhat mesmerized by how Jesus prayed. It wasn't his articulation. It wasn't his choice of words. It wasn't the scriptures that he quoted while he was praying. It was just the fact of how they sensed the nearness of God, the very presence of the Lord of God as Jesus prayed. And those disciples, with a childlike humility, they came to Jesus. And in Luke 11, 1, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And our series has been entitled, Lord, teach us to pray. If I could tell you from my heart as the pastor of this church, my greatest desire as a church that we'd learn how to pray, amen? That we'd learn how to get a hold of God. That we realize that we need to pray without ceasing. That we realize this morning we have not because we ask not. We'd recognize the wonderfulness of that song. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. In our series, we've learned about the priority of prayer. In our series, we've learned about the importance of being persistent in prayer. In our series, we've learned about the power of prayer. In our series, we've learned about faith or persuasion in prayer. And this morning, as we continue on, we'll be looking at subjects like the potential in prayer. We'll be looking at subjects like the purity in prayer. But this morning, I want you to notice with me in this passage of Scripture, the kind of praying that God wants you and I to have. Praying that is uninhibited, praying that is unrestrained, praying that is unimpeded. God invites you and me to come boldly before the throne of grace. I want to declare to you this morning, brothers and sisters of Christ, if God could have a generation of Christians, of children of God, born again men and women and boys and girls who could come boldly before the throne of grace, we could reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we could come boldly before God, you'd be amazed at the things, how God can change the unchangeable in our lives. This church, since its inception, has to testify of God's wonderful working of many situations where God has changed the unchangeable, where God has taken things that seemed impossible and made them possible. I still believe today that God is still in the impossibility business of changing the impossible. I I still believe he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But the challenge this morning is we must accept that challenge personally and realize today that is something we must do. I want you to notice in our passage of scripture, perhaps in verse 16, one of the greatest verses of encouragement about prayer. The apostle who I believe was Paul who wrote this said, 
let us. It's an invitation for us corporately, collectively. He's talking to believers in those early days of the church as the church was, was, was emerging, if I may say that. As the church was expanding and growing. And the primary context of this is Jewish believers who'd gotten saved. He says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to notice some things that, uh, that the Apostle Paul is instructing us about here. Notice, first of all, beginning with verse 14, we see Paul speaking to us about a prompted responsibility. In verse 14, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, as we get into this subject, we need to understand a few things. Number one, who was the author of this book? Now, it doesn't bear the signature, it doesn't bear the actual signature. It was written by Paul. But if you study this in correlation with the other epistles that Paul wrote, I believe personally that it bears his semblance. I believe it bears his, if I may say this, I think it bears his personality. I think it bears his style. There's a lot of things that are contained in the book of, he, book of Hebrews here that speaks to me personally. There was the Apostle Paul here. And, uh, you know, God didn't want us to get all hung up about who wrote it, but I believe the style here reflects us the Apostle Paul. And I believe as we look here, we must understand that Paul was writing out of a heart of compassion, concern about the believers. I want you to go back with me to chapter 1 for just a minute. Because he doesn't start off the book of Hebrews with a, with a normal salutation, you know, grace, person, me, uh, peace and mercy be unto you. He didn't start with those typical uh, pa- pa- Paulian uh, type of salutation. He starts off in verse 1 because of some trouble the believers were going through. He said, God, by the way, that's a good place to start in everything in life. Amen? It's God. In creation... It began with God. In the beginning, he's God. Listen, the first thing you need to do today and realize it's about God. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our sorrows. It's about God. And he said, God, who had sundry times. He's talking about God's presence. Listen, more than anything else, you and I want God's presence. And we should desire God's presence in our life. And so he begins this book. And I want you to notice, Paul is writing to Jewish believers who joyfully received Jesus Christ as their Savior. You have to understand, for a Jewish person to get saved, that was a remarkable thing. Because they were moved out of tradition. They were moved, out of, they were moved in their hearts towards realizing, it was not tra- traditions and ceremonies that would save them. It was realizing that faith alone in Jesus Christ would save them. It was realizing that they were parting with the traditions and the ceremonies and didn't have to repeat the animal sacrifices because Jesus came as the Lamb of God who would take away all of our sins. And as they, they called upon the Lord, they recognized they had freedom in their soul. They had salvation. They became sons of God. And God worked wonderfully. The other day we were out so many, I think it was yesterday, uh, I was winning and knocking on some doors, getting some people signed up for, for our, our kids camp coming up in about two weeks here on July 30th. And went back on a street where a few weeks ago where a young man got saved and went back to the home and talked to the father a little bit. I introduced myself to him. His name was Rick. And, and he was just very thankful. He's a very busy man. He said, well, thank you for coming by. And I told him his son got saved. And he said, well, that's wonderful. And he told me what church they had gone to for a while. But they had uh, just gotten real busy and away from things. And so we got to talk to him. I said, hey, I'm going to come back. You're a little bit not, not as busy. to talk about some things. And, and uh we went on from there and we lined up some people. We had a, uh, one individual on there that we felt like we really, really need to see. And so my wife and I said it was about 1230 and I needed to get the hospital to see dad. But I said, let's make one more call before we did. And one see a lady has been coming to our church, I don't know, maybe about a year or something like that for so. And, and just very quiet lady, has uh, some hearing difficulties and a few other health difficulties and so forth there. But she just, one of our members faithfully picks her up every Sunday and she lives just maybe five minutes from church and brings her in. And, and her husband opened the door and went there and he looked kind of uh, like, who are you? 
and looked like he wanted to punch me out. Like, who are you coming to that lunchtime here and that type of thing? And, and uh, he just was just kind of a little agitated. We were there and she saw us and in Cantonese, she said, hey, you please come in, please come in. She recognized who we are, Warren. We're thankful we got to sit down with this lady and explain to her. And my, my wife had to write out for her in Chinese just what, what it means to be saved and so forth there. And we're very thankful that the conclusion of an hour and a half later, this dear lady, Mrs. Connie Ng, trusted Jesus Christ, her Savior. And uh, she looked up, she, she, my wife had to write out the prayer for her to pray. And I said, just honey, write it out for her. I think it'll help her to understand. So because we were literally shouting to her so she could understand what we we're saying. And I didn't want her husband to think we were yelling at her. Amen. You know, so I said, why don't you write it out? And she just read it. And here's what she did. She read out the, the sinner's prayer and she read it. And then she looked up and she just had a wonderful smile on her face and the peace of God over. This morning, she went to the Chinese party, shook her hand. You could tell you just those of you who know what I'm talking about. Uh, been down that road. She just looked at me and that smile saying, I did the right thing yesterday. And I'm going to tell you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, the right thing to do today is get Jesus in your heart. Amen? The right thing today is make sure that you're going to heaven. Well, we look at this passage, those believers did the right thing. They got saved. But these believers, they didn't realize that the moment you get saved, the devil turns up the notch in terms of um, throwing things at you. The Bible calls them fiery darts. Fiery darts are coming in different directions that are aiming to take out your Christian faith. And those fiery darts can be very discouraging. And those fiery darts can put doubts in your mind. And these false teachers came who were casting these fiery darts at these believers and telling them Jesus alone is not sufficient. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, the entire context is really about Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. Okay? And uh, we read about that there. In fact, the opening chapter, chapter 1, so marvelously speaks about the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and speaks about His deity. He speaks about His death. And it speaks about His coming again, His dominion, and so forth there. But they were casting doubts and aspersions about who Jesus Christ was. And these believers, as you'll notice in the book of Hebrews, there are, it describes to us five dangerous stages of spiritual decline. You write that down, please. Five stages of serious spiritual decline. Because this was written to help you and me as an exhortation, an admonition, that if it happened to them, it can happen to you and me. And these five stages of spiritual decline begin with chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3 says this, How should we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard Him? The first stage of spiritual decline is, the, is this problem of drifting away. You see, they got to the place where they just became, they were hearing all these voices, and here's what happened. When your mind is not made up about the Lord, your mind is not made up about the Scripture, what typically happens, paralysis steps in. And this paralysis is you become indecisive. Tonight, Lord willing, if I'm preaching tonight, Lord, uh, you know, we're going to look at a passage that speaks about indecision. And, you, you know, when you become indecisive and, and when fear sets in and, and doubts set in, you're not sure what to do. A lot of times you're just paralyzed. You don't know what to do. You just kind of put things off and put things off and put things off. And these believers were at the place where they, had, they, were, they were just becoming negligent about what they were hearing. They weren't making application of the Word of God. It's like the preacher would preach. They'd say, well, that's a good preacher. But they really didn't agree with them and they made no decisions. And they were drifting. And here's what happens. When you drift, it's kind of like if you've ever been out on the ocean without anchoring your boat. you ever been there before? You just kind of 
drift a little bit here, and you'll move a little bit here, and you move a little bit here. Before you know it, you're way, way far away from where you were at before. And drifting comes in steps, and drifting comes in moments, and drifting happens over a course of time. And before you know it, if you're not very careful, if you're not monitoring your faith, you could have started right here, right here where the pulpit is, and you could be way left over on the other side, and not even realize that you left. Other people know that you've drifted, but you can't see that you've drifted. These believers are drifting. That's spiritual decline number one. Notice spiritual decline number two. Real quickly, look at chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 7, he said this, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. Then go down, notice verse 13. He says, But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you read chapter 3, going to chapter 4, spiritual decline number 2 is the problem of doubting. There's decline, there's doubting. It's when you start losing faith. Doubting is when you start questioning things. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling. God bless your heart. You may be struggling today. You've got questions about, am I really saved? Do I know for sure I'm going to heaven? You may be questioning this morning, you know, that uh, does God love me? You may have grown up in a home where there was abusiveness and problems and, and you have doubts and insecurities and you're wondering, does God love you? And I want to show you this morning, God does love you. God does love you, Amen. And we look at this passage of scripture this morning and, and, and we see these believers, he's writing to them, he says, man, today, he says, he's quoting from the book of Psalms, he says, today if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And listen, we can hear preaching and get hardened and we can, we can hear preaching and, and we, we kind of just get calcified in our heart. Why? Because we're, down, we're doubting in faith what, what, what God said not to doubt in faith there. And so we see spiritual stage number two, there's, it's doubting. Notice spiritual stage number three, we go down a little bit more and notice chapter five, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11, he said this. He said, uh, uh, let us, uh, let's see, I'm in chapter 4 here. Let me, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 11, he said this. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Now that phrase, dull of hearing, is also the same word that's used in chapter 6, verse 12. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience and hear the promises. Okay, five stages of spiritual decline. Stage number one is the problem of drifting. Say drifting with me. Say spiritual decline. Stage number one is... Drifting. Spiritual stage number two is doubting. Notice spiritual stage number three. It is dullness. Okay? Dullness, he says here, or slothfulness. He says here in chapter 5, 11, we have many things to say and are hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. What he's saying here, you got the place where you, you have become, you've regressed spiritually. Your spirituality has gotten a place you don't understand the things of God. Listen this morning. If it's hard for you to understand God's word, If it's hard for you to read it and comprehend it, if it's hard for you to understand what the preacher is saying, there's one of two things. Number one, it could mean if you're saved that you have just you're you're still on the milk of the word. You're a spiritual baby who needs to grow. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you're not growing, there's some things being preached on that you're not grasping. You have to be dead honest with yourself, with God. Maybe the problem is not God. Maybe the problem is me, and I need to start to grow. Our church has new foundations classes. You need to be in a new foundation class if you're not growing. You need to learn the fundamentals of the faith. You need to learn the ABCs of Christian growth so that you can be a strong Christian. God wants us to mature past the milk of the Word to the meat of the Word. Because when you get milk and then you go to meat, meat results in muscle. Muscle means you're strong. Muscle means you're able to comprehend, as chapter 5 says there, you're able to discern the things of God. You're able to discern good and evil, okay? But there's a second thing. If you don't comprehend the things of God, 
God, you're having difficulty. It might mean you never got saved because the spirit of God may not be in you. And this would be an important thing that if you're struggling with that, today would be the best day possible to get saved because God is making that aware to you. This is the day of salvation. This is the accepted time, the Apostle Paul said. So we see spiritual stage number three, when we're, when we're in a stage of decline, we could be drifting. We could have doubtfulness. We could have dullness. But look at chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 is what I call stage four. Our medical professionals realize when they talk about cancer diagnosis, you tell someone they have a stage four diagnosis. Cancer is metastasized throughout the body. It's more than one place there. And when it metastasizes, they call it at least a stage four or even worse. And stage four is when things are very critical. Things need immediate attention. And then you're at a you're at a place right now where you don't have time to wait. And notice in chapter 10, verse 29, we see stage four of the spiritual decline. He says, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now, without going to all the particulars of this, what he's talking about there, they had gone to the place where they were not responding to the, they were not responding to God even though they were drifting. They were not responding to God, even though that there was doubtfulness. And they were not responding to God when they had, they, there was some dullness. Now they're at a critical stage where they become so hardened. They become so indifferent that they were being spiteful of the things of God. And Paul uses some very strong language in talking about they were doing despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now, despite the Spirit of grace is resisting the Holy Spirit of God. Doing despite the Holy Spirit of God, it could also be quenching the Spirit's voice. The Bible tells us as Christians to despise not prophecies, quench not the Spirit. Listen, if you reject God's Word, you reject the preaching of God's Word, you're quenching the voice of the Spirit speaking to you. You're trying to give your own interpretation... Instead of the interpretation of God. That's why we must obey every impulse of the Spirit. If we quench the Spirit, we're pouring cold water on the fire. We're stirring up the coals and turning them over, not for more fire, but to say we want it to be cold. And when the Spirit's quenched, there is a coldness in our heart. And if you would, almost a deadness in our spirituality where we have no desire for the things of God. And so now he's telling them spiritual decline number four is that they were at a place where they had become, they had become spiteful of things of God. And then stage number five, you'll notice very quickly here stage number five in chapter 12 verse 25 he says this see then that you refuse not him that speaketh for if they escape not who refuse him that speaketh on earth much more shall not we escape if we turn away uh, from him that speaketh from heaven and problem number five is we read from verse 25 chapter 12 verse 25 to 29 is the problem of defiance defiance is basically this i'm not going to move i'm not going to move You can't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to move. I'm set in my ways. And defiance is that worst place because as he ends that chapter, he reminds us our God is a consuming fire. Now, I say all that now, as you go back to chapter four, Paul is writing this as you understand the context of of the book of Hebrews. He describes this, the spiritual stages of the decline. And Paul is writing this book out of compassion and love for these believers, because God's heart for you and me is that we're on the winning side. Amen. And God's heart for you and me. And by the way, we are on the winning side is that we're victorious Christians living for Jesus Christ. But Paul, as he's writing chapter four, describes to them. He said, look, I'm telling you these things. He's already told the first two stages. He said, 
you can correct this problem right now. And he talks about in chapter 4, if you'll notice, I think it's verse 10, he talks about the rest, R-E-S-T, the rest of the Christian. Now, I've heard many people incorrectly describe the rest as kicking back and sitting back and saying, let the young people do the work and let somebody else do the work of God. And he says, the rest means I need to take my siesta and the rest means I need to go take my nap time and the rest means I'm supposed to kick back and take back. That's not what he's saying there. The rest, the word for rest is a word that incorporates the spiritual inheritance of every believer. Because in Hebrews 4, he takes them back to the book of Joshua. In Joshua, Joshua was commissioned by God after Moses died to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. They had waited 40 years through the wilderness. The time had come. It was now time to go into the promised land and to claim their inheritance. There is a city for every one of them. And in Deuteronomy, he talks about when you claim your city, you're to, you're to, you're to plant your gardens and you're to grow your crops and God's going to send rain to, to, to flourish and you're going to be blessed of God as long as you obey me and love me with all your heart and you don't have other idols and things of that nature. And so he's telling them the rest is you've got to be like the children of Israel. You've got to be you've got to follow the leading of Joshua, who Joshua is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you've got to follow the leading of Joshua to claim your inheritance. Now, here's what he's saying there. The Christian life, we have responsibility in the Christian life to claim our inheritance. God doesn't want you to be status quo and God doesn't want us to stand still and God doesn't want us to be babies all our life. God wants us to start climbing that stair climber and realize uh, that, that there's more to claim in Jesus Christ. Hey, there's more promises to claim. There's more prayers to be answered. There's more things God wants to do. There's more of the spirit we must have. There's more power God wants you to do. There are more activities God wants you to do. You have to realize today we've got to get out of the secular mindset of thinking that, well, I'm 60 years old or 65. And there, I'm, I guess I need to let somebody else do it and realize age is nothing with God. We have to realize today that every man in his best state is altogether vanity and realize as God gives us breath, our prayer should be every day. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts into wisdom. And so the rest of the Christian life is for you and I to get up as soldiers of Jesus Christ and claim our inheritance. What is that inheritance? You need to move on in the Christian life. You need to learn how to pray and get a hold of God. You need to learn how to trust God for your family. You need to start developing a prayer list of people you're going to pray for and asking God to save souls. You need to decide that, you know, I, I need God to, I, I want God to use me for His glory and, and God can use you for His glory. And you go from being someone who's shy and timid and reserved to being someone who can have a faith that's on fire and alive for Jesus Christ there. And so he talks about pursuing that. So notice in chapter 4, the beginning of these admonitions, he says this, go to chapter 4 with Hebrews with me. Say amen if you're with me right now. He said in verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall at the same example of unbelief. Here's what he's saying there. Israel got to place as they entered the promised land. As they got into the wilderness area, excuse me. Unbelief set in. And unbelief paralyzed them for 40 years in that wilderness journey. And then as they went on, they had fears about what cities to conquer. And thank God that God raised up Joshua to be their leader during that time. The Christian life doesn't stop at accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. The Christian life is just beginning. He said, I've come that you might have joy, that your joy might be full. 
I've come that they might have life and they may have it more abundantly. God wants us to have the enjoy the abundance of the Christian life and the joy of the Christian life and the wonderfulness of the Christian life is not just for preachers and not just for missionaries and not for people that are physically talented. Listen, every single promise of the word of God is for every child of God in this room this morning. So now we get the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 is a chapter of encouragement. And he writes to them in verse 11. Notice if you would. Verse 16, 14, excuse me. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. And he gives us an exhortation. Which is a prompted responsibility. Let us hold fast. Let us be steadfast. Let us hold fast our profession. He said, believers, there was a day when you sat down and the scriptures were communicated on a parchment, on a scroll. You heard that you were a sinner and needed, needed salvation, needed to be saved. You realized as a sinner you needed to repent of your sins and have faith towards God. And you bowed your head and you opened your heart. Yes, Jesus Christ is Savior. Listen, the profession of our faith begins when we ask Jesus as our Savior. But the profession of our faith, as we understand the Scriptures this morning, the profession of our faith is an open confession, an open declaration of telling others, I am a son of God. I've been saved. Jesus is my Savior. I'm thankful today that God has saved me today. I'm thankful this morning, back on December 4th, 1971, I didn't know as much as I I do today about the Bible, but I know this one thing. I knew this one thing on that very next day. I knew God loved me. I knew that God saved me. And all I knew from what the Sunday school teacher told me, you got to go tell somebody that Jesus saved your soul. And I'm thankful I did. And listen, the profession of faith begins when you go out and tell somebody that you, you, you trusted Christ Savior. I'm looking in the face of some folks this morning. You've been saved in recent days and you've been saved in recent weeks in this church. And the next step you need to take is to come forward this morning to tell the brothers and sisters of Christ here today that you have, that you, that, that Christ your Savior. That is a profession of faith. Look in your scriptures this morning, your notes. Notice a couple verses that Paul gives us. Notice 1 Timothy 6, verses 12 to 13. This word profession is used six times in the scripture. Three times is in Hebrews. But notice a couple other times that's used in 1 Timothy 6. In 1 Timothy 6, notice I read verses 12 and 13. Paul told Timothy, and by the way, Timothy, you'd empathize with Timothy, and Timothy, Timothy would empathize with you. He was timid, he was shy, he was reserved, he didn't want to be the public lie, he didn't like, he was not much of a speaker, I mean, he had all the same inferiority complexes and, 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 and difficulties we have. And he said in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. Notice this, whereunto thou art also called, notice this, and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. We saying, Timothy, he says, I call you back. I know you're timid. And he said, I know you're reserved. I know your personalities. You're not confrontational. And I know that you don't like dealing with the problems. But he said, I remind you back in that day that when you got saved, he said, you profess a good profession before many witnesses. And he's taking us back to there in, in Acts chapter, I think, 14 and 15 and 16, when Timothy was growing as a young Christian, maybe 10 years of age, 13 years of age, 15 years of age. He was a young, young boy that he was growing in the faith. And there was a good, the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that, that he saw this young disciple named 
Timotheus, Paul did. And the, the people, the brethren there in the, in the ch- cities, the churches of Derby and Lystra, they gave a good report. What does that mean? He witnessed, they, they witnessed a good profession. He was not ashamed of telling people Jesus was his Savior. He was not ashamed of taking that step of obedience and following the Lord in scriptural baptism and saying, I want the brothers and sisters to know that I identify with Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection on our first row just a few, few weeks ago. Ashley right here got saved. Her mother-in-law came to town. She accepted Christ as her Savior. And soon after that, Edgar and Ashley came to me and they said, Pastor, what's the next step? And I said, Ashley, next step is you need to, you need to take the next step of obedience and follow the Lord's scriptural baptism. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ washes away your sins. And I said, but baptism does represent our testimony. Christ is in our heart. We were once dead in sin when we go into the water, but now we're alive unto Jesus Christ as we come out. And I said, it just represents, it's testifying to the body Christ that you're being baptized into, that Jesus is in your heart. She said, I can do that. I want people to know Jesus in my heart. And she did. She got baptized just a few weeks ago. And we praise the Lord for that. But, you know, good profession. That's what Timothy did. He got baptized. You know what Timothy did? He told the church, he said, Jesus in my heart. He was just being transparent. Paul knew about that. He said, where unto thou art also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. Notice in verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus. Notice this, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Now, to understand that, I don't have time to get into it, but you can read John chapter 19, the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he stood before Pontius Pilate. Pilate looked at him. He said, what is truth? Duh, the truth was looking right in the face. They meant Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. He said of Jesus, even our Lord Jesus Christ, as he stood before Pontius Pilate, at that moment that he was being falsely accused by the Jews of crimes he never committed. And they said, it says there that he witnessed a good confession before Jesus. All I'm saying today, we have a prompted responsibility. God is telling us we need to hold fast the profession we have in Jesus Christ. Listen this morning. This is not the time in this culture. And this is not the time in this society for you and I to hide our heads and tie the sand and to say, I'm going to turn my eyes away against the passage of laws and the, and the, and the, and the defection of the society away from God. This is not the time for God's people to stick your head in the sand or turn your back on everything or go hide somewhere where nobody sees you. This is a time a world that is lost and going to hell needs to see and hear some Christians who are on fire for God and say, Jesus is my Savior. And Jesus is still on the throne and God is still alive and God is still on his throne and God is working our lives. They need to know there's a church here in Heritage Baptist Church that is witnessing a good profession before many witnesses as we give out tracts, as we knock on doors, as we tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to know that the God is alive and the only way they're going to know God is alive when you and I go out and witness a good profession before him. Let us hold fast our profession. Listen, today, maybe you're somebody that I've, I've been there before where you just kind of regress a little bit. You're stepping backwards and you just say, let the young people do it or it's my personality. But Paul said this. He said in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, 32 says, whosoever therefore shall confess me before men. Him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. Here's something I hear all the time. And I'm, not, I'm not, about not being derogatory. I'm not being insulting or critical. But if you're Asian, a lot of Asian people say this. Well, I'm Asian, so therefore I can't. Or some of my Hispanic friends will say, well, I'm Hispanic and I can't. Or some of us might say, well, I'm, I'm inarticulate. I can't speak and I can't. Listen, when the power of the gospel comes in your life, 
You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is heaven. Listen, the baseline of our Christianity begins by stepping forward and saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I love Jesus. And we ought to sing from our hearts, not just in church when we're on the outside. Oh, how I love Jesus every day. First John 2.23, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same as not the Father. He that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I'm saying this morning, we need to get out of our shyness and we need to get out of our timidity and we need to get out of our reservations and we need to get out of our self-righteousness and we need to get out of all of our excuses and decide today, listen, Jesus gave Himself for me. He hung publicly in humiliation and shame and shed His blood on the cross for me. And listen, if that's what He would do for me, the least I could do is tell people what Jesus has done for me. Those of you who know your church history might know the name, a man by the name of John Chrysostom. The name Chrysostom means golden tongue. John Chrysostom was a great advocate of the faith, great preacher of the gospel. He was sent to Antioch, from Antioch to Constantinople, where we know that that's where kind of the Roman government kind of seeded things as things were progressing along and they tried to unite the, the, the Roman government. While they did, they united the Roman government with organized religion and tried to portray that as Christianity and created a universal church concept there. And they sent him over to Constantinople because they knew all these things were happening. And there, if you study your church history, there's a number of councils that went along that were redefining the doctrines of God and redefining who Jesus Christ was. And there were those who tried to stay steadfast in the faith. And I just want to say, well, I'm saying that I'm thankful that our Baptist forefathers didn't join those councils. And I'm thankful our Baptist forefathers still, they still stood firm for Jesus Christ. And while others were trying to compromise, unite with the state and said, well, if we unite with the state, there'll be less persecution. I'm thankful our Baptist brethren said, we're not going to give in to that kind of nonsense. We're not going to compromise the word of God. We're not going to compromise the die. And we're not going to compromise Jesus Christ to do such things here. John Chrysostom got there. They told him that as he was there at Constantinople. They told him, if you don't shut your mouth, they said, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna put you away, son. They said, they, you better stop this. You're getting a lot of people ticked off of your preaching. You're getting a lot of people ticked off what, where you're going off there. And John Chrysostom said this to them. He stood before that council. He said, what can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will he, will, will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be the loss of wealth? Well, we brought nothing to this world, and we certainly can carry nothing out. Thus all the tears of the world are contemptible in my eyes, and I smile at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, death I do not shrink from. Hey, listen, we need some brothers and sisters of Christ in Heritage Baptist Church this morning that would have the faith of a John Chrysostom, that would have a faith of John who was exiled on Patmos and was boiled in a pot of oil. And we didn't have the faith that those, those other apostles who were martyred to death, some that were speared, and some who were crucified, and some that were dragged through the streets of Rome, I'm telling you this morning, we need to get back that fearlessness and that boldness that, say, that says what Paul said. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Listen, this is not a time to be a scaredy cat Christian. And this is not a time for you to say, well, let somebody else do it. Let's rise up and stand up. Stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. We see a prompted responsibility. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. This is the time to hold tight. Hold on. Don't let go. So, well, I'll be, let somebody else do. No, you hold fast and profess your faith there. We see a second thing Paul had to give them for encouragement this morning. These believers were timid. These believers were reserved. These believers were about ready to quit. In verse 14, he gives them prompted responsibility. But notice verses 14 and 15 very quickly. Jesus, the apostle Paul speaks to them about a powerful representative. 
Now let me tell you something this morning. A lot of us think we're strong until we realize that the weight on our shoulders is crushing us. Until we realize we're not that strong. That's why God sends the kind of trials He does into our life. That we might lean on Him and not lean upon ourselves. You have to remember, these believers, they're drifting. They have doubts. And Paul just said, let's hold fast our profession. Why are we going to do that? And he reminds them, you can't do it on your own. You have a powerful representative. And that powerful representative is God's Son, Jesus Christ. You see, in the midst of difficulties and trials and affliction and weakness and powerlessness, we've got to remember, we've got to get our eyes off of self and get our eyes off of circumstances. You know what we need to get our eyes on? We need to get our eyes on the Savior. And so notice what he says there in verses 14 and 15. He says, seeing then, get your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. You know what he's doing there? He's, he's reminding them of everything he told them, chapters 1, 2, and 3, about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Joshua. He's greater than all their Old Testament heroes. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the Old Testament. Testament high priest. He's saying, look, you've got Jesus, the Son of God. He's everlasting. He's ever living. And he culminates that in Jonathan Hebrews 13, 8, by saying, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so notice, he brings them back to Christ. Listen, when things get haywire and things go crazy, we've got to get dead center back on Jesus. We've got to get focused right back on Christ. And so he says, then, let's, let's, let's look at our eyes on Christ. And he says in verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, what's Paul trying to tell them about this powerful representative? Because they're discouraged. They're ready to quit. Some have quit. Some are no longer fruitful, productive for God. They weren't doing anything for God. And maybe this morning, I'm talking to somebody today, you used to be fruitful for God and serving the Lord, but you've put, it, you've put that on the back burner. Listen, this morning, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith. So he talked about Jesus. We see Jesus who's powerful. He's not a textbook character. He's the living Son of God. He's not a teacher. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's our God. He's the great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Now, Jesus this morning is either a great Jesus or he's a little Jesus to you. And Paul wants us to refute that. And God wants to refute that this morning that you and I would understand. We have a powerful representative in Jesus Christ. Listen this morning. Get your Bible today and open your Bible and read it and say, man, thank God. The power that raised from the dead is the same power that's alive today. So what do we see about Jesus? Notice first of all, verse 15, he's the son of God who is sinless. I invite you this morning, if you'll be honest, study organized religion. Every founder, 
was a sinner. I said every founder was a sinner. Regardless. Now I'm not going to go on the diatribe and name them, but every founder of organized religion was a sinner. But Jesus Christ is sinless. He's without sin. You have to understand, we have to go back to the miracle of the virgin birth. The means by the virgin birth was not an accident. It was the providential design of God. He had to come into this world without a human father because he only had one father. That's the heavenly father. Listen, the son of God became the son of man so that sons of men could become sons of God. He came to this world by way of a virgin birth. Through a virgin birth, he came to this world sinless. He did not have a sinful nature. Paul, as he writes, he says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was, was in all points tempted like a... Do you understand that this morning? He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. First Peter 2, 21, 22 says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was God found out. Hey, praise the Lord this morning of the greatness of Jesus Christ. He's great because he's holy. He's holy, which means he's sinless this morning. He can't make mistakes like you and me. He can't falter like you and me. He can't die like you and me in the sense that he will die a mortal death. No, Jesus is a sinless Savior. Thank God we have a sinless Savior. He is a sinless man. It took a sinless man to die for sinful creation. Jesus here is sinless. I, I think of what Paul said, John said in John 1.14. He said, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, that means this. Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man, yet without sin. He's powerful because he's the Son of God who's sinless. And we ought to just rejoice this morning that we have a sinless Savior today, man. But he's the Son of God who is our substitute. Look at verse 14. He speaks about the great high priest. Now, the high priest's function in Israel was to, he had to come from the Aaronic, uh, the line of Aaron. And he had to bring a blood sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, which only he could enter into. You read about that in Hebrews 9. And he did that once a year to read Hebrews 5. He did that once a year for the sins of all the people. Bear that in mind now. Once a year, he'd go in there with a basin of blood and he'd sprinkle upon the mercy seat. To make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. Now, Paul, as he's writing chapter 4, verse 14, he's using words which we're used to, but you have to understand, to those Jews who were suffering at that moment in time, who were in difficulty, those words, those adjectives that were chosen, jumped off the pages of the Scriptures, and they said, whoa! He says, seeing we have a great high priest. High priests went in to bear the sins of the people. Watch this. But not just their sins only, but also the sins of the high priest. So the high priest and his work was never completed. Every single year, he'd have to go in the Holy of Holies. You read about that in chapter 5. Every year, he would go in there to bring a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. That's why it was a perpetual sacrifice they had to do until Jesus came. But watch this. Why is he powerful as the Son of God? Because Jesus is our great high priest. He is sinless. He didn't have to bring a sacrifice for himself. The sacrifice was himself for the sins of all the world. High priest brought an animal sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God for sinners slain. He took your place in mine. He took your place in mine. He died on the cross for our sins. 
All of our iniquities were laid on him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He took all of our sins and iniquities. It was laid on him. Listen, the punishment you and I should receive. Jesus Christ took it on. Listen this morning. When he did that, he not only was our substitute. Jesus Christ satisfied all of God's righteous, holy demands for sin. He paid it in full when he died on the cross for every sinner today. And Paul writes in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens. Listen, every believer there could understand that Jesus didn't come to bring something for others. He came for just for himself and others. He came specifically because he was the only one qualified to offer his life for others. Hey, this morning, does it grip your heart? Jesus died for your sins. He took your place. He was the great high priest. And by the way, he's the only high priest through all scripture who's called great. Because the greatness of his sacrifice, the greatness of his death for you and me. But notice, he's a savior. He's a, he's a representative who's sinless. A representative who's our substitute. Notice verse 15. He's a representative who's sovereign. I like what Paul said here in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Where did he go? And here's that word passed again. That is passed into the heavens. He transitioned. A new event occurred. What happened there? Listen, he returned to the throne of God to to retain his honor and his dignity and his glory. There he sits at the right hand of God and the angels circling that throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Listen, Jesus passed in heaven. Why in the heavens? Because there in heaven, that represents a Christ who is our advocate, a Christ who is our intercessor. And there at the right hand of God, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. We talked about this weeks before. Hebrews 7, 24, 25. For we have a high priest who is holy, harmless, and separate from sinners, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. Hey, listen, the only one who can pray for us and get those answers done, the only one who can pray for us and get these completed is Jesus himself. Listen, he's sovereign. He is God. He is Lord. He's on the throne. He's at the place of favor. He's at a place where he's infinite and he's eternal. He's powerful. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the savior for all the world. Hey, grass of this morning, we don't have a king that can be dethroned. We have a king who's staying on his throne this morning. A representative who's sinless. A representative who's our substitute. A representative who is sovereign. But notice in verse 14 and 15, you have a representative who's sympathetic. Verse 15 says, He was in all points tempted like as we are. We go around and we moan and complain. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. I'm going to correct that. Jesus does. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They said it was so terrible, the beating of his face. We hid our faces from him. Jesus sympathizes when we're declining. Jesus sympathizes when we're doubting. Jesus sympathizes if we're drifting. Jesus sympathizes when we're discouraged. That doesn't mean he coincides with it. It basically means he sympathizes. Listen, he was in a human body that was without sin. He experienced the pain and the suffering, the sorrow, the hurt that you and I would go through. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But Jesus is not like us and cannot, and, and, and where we were, where he's unapproachable. Jesus is approachable. And so Paul, as he's writing this, he says this, notice taken in its context, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the 
feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know what Paul's trying to tell us this morning? He said, look, you got your eyes off Jesus. You thought he was unapproachable. You thought he didn't care about your problems. You thought he didn't care about you. You thought about that. Maybe his death was in vain. He said, I'm going to erase all those thoughts. And there are two verses. He describes us the deity, the death, and the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes us as Savior, sympathizer, and sovereign all together in that one, those two verses. He describes us a Jesus that's always there for you and me. A Jesus that never leaves us nor forsakes us. A Jesus is there for you right now, wherever you may be at in your Christian life. He's there for you and I. And he's saying, listen, we have a powerful representative in Jesus Christ. He was the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And listen, because of that, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So where does that all lead us as we close this morning? These believers were discouraged. They were down. They were wondering what to do. They were drifting. He tells them we have a prompted responsibility. Let's hold fast our profession. He tells them we have a powerful representative. You're not going to fight it within yourself. Don't go to the Anthony Robbins self-help thinking that's going to help you. Don't go down the block and go look on Amazon.com for the next motivational book. He says, no, you've got to get your eyes back on Jesus. Why? We need to look unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, suffering the shame, and is set at the right hand of the throne of God. Everything Paul repeats over and over again points us back to getting our eyes back on Jesus. Oh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And I'm telling you this morning, our eyes are on our problems, our eyes are on our feet, our eyes are on our money, our eyes are on our problems, our eyes are on this and on that and this and that. Listen, today is the time. We need to get our eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ today. So notice what He gives us. He gives us in verse 16 as we close this morning a practical result. It's not enough to tell you I've got a powerful representative. It's not enough to tell you we are prompted to a responsibility. There's a practical result because these believers, watch this, they were ignoring the word of God in verse 12. And now we go to verse 16. He goes, talks about the other component of the Christian life that is such a vital ingredient to Christian success. And that is the area of prayer. And he says, listen, brethren, you need to hold fast your profession. Brethren, you need to get your eyes on Jesus. But he said, brethren, verse 16, I want to urge you today, get to God. And he says in verse 16, I'm going to give you a practical result. He says, let us therefore, and he throws himself in the mix. By the way, aren't you glad a God in heaven who just sympathized with us, he throws himself in the mix. He says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And as he looks at that, he knows where you're, you and I are at. He tells us to have a resolve to come boldly before God. Don't be afraid of God. Don't run from God. Don't turn your eyes from God. Run, make a beeline and get to God right now is what he's saying there. The first thing he tells us, notice in this last thing we say, notice our human frailty. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. Notice this next phrase, to help in time of need. You ever been there? A time of need? You're out of options? You're out of money? Out of time? Out of patience? Out of heart? You feel like your breath is taken out of you? You feel like you're out of motivation? You feel you're out of luck? which is a bad term to use. And he says, listen, that's your time of need. Listen, God understands our human frailty. Jesus would tempt in all points as we are. Listen, Jesus couldn't even describe the depths of the sorrow and the depths of hurt he was going through during those last 24 hours before he was crucified on the cross. And he's saying, brethren, I want you to know he's a powerful representative who understands everything you're going through and everything that's happening. But he understands this. He says, you need to come to him during your time of need. Tell Jesus about your human frailty. Time of need is a critical time. A time of need is a crisis time. 
A time of need is a conflict time of husbands and wives. A time of need is being on a ship far away from shore in the middle of a storm and not even sure if you're going to make it and the waters are coming into the boat. Listen, a time of need is a life and death time. A time of need is when there's no imminent solution available. A time of need is when we recognize first and foremost human frailty and limitation. Listen, if you're so strong that you don't think you need God, you haven't experienced a time of need. But when that time of need comes, you better realize what this verse says. That's the time we need to come boldly before God. So that resolve, we must understand our human frailty. And in that resolve, notice secondly, we must be heroically forthright. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And watch this, we're almost done. Before you got saved, God's throne was not a throne of grace. It was a throne of judgment, a throne of wrath. You were looking dead in the eye of the great white throne judge. If you had died that moment, you would have gone to hell and then you would have been resurrected later on in eternity and you would stand before that great white throne to give an account of what you did with Jesus as Savior. And the Bible basically says God's going to open His book and your name was blotted out. Your name is no longer in His book of life. Your name is there now, but if you don't receive Jesus as Savior, when you breathe your last breath, it's blotted out. So I make you a plane reservation, a restaurant reservation, a doctor appointment. Your name is not there. It's, we're sorry. You can't come in. And we notice here as we look at this as time of need. He says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. It was a throne of judgment before you got saved. But when you got saved, praise the Lord. That throne was turned in reverse. It's not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace. It is grace that receives us. It is grace that sustains us. It is grace that helps us. It is grace during our time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That would save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I say, grace. Grace, wonderful grace, God's grace, which is sufficient for it. And we notice here, it's a throne of grace. He's saying, listen, you can come boldly because that throne is not going to turn you away. And you can come boldly because that throne is not going to reject you. And you can come boldly because that throne loves you. And you can come boldly because that throne wants you there. And maybe this morning, somebody's put doubts in your heart and mind that this church doesn't want you, and the preacher doesn't want you, and the church doesn't want you. But I'm going to tell you this morning, those are the fiery darts of the devil. And we need to realize that throne of grace beckons and invites you, no matter who you are, come to him right now. <clears throat> Grace invites us to come to the Lord with a heroic forthrightness. We need to stop trying to resolve our issues on our own. Come boldly to the throne of grace. We need to stop being timid and soaking our problem and come boldly to the throne of grace. Boldness has a connotation. Nothing will stop you. Bonus has the idea that you don't think your prayer is too big for God. Bonus has the idea that you have one chance to prevail upon God for your soul. Listen, you don't know if the next prayer you make might save somebody's life. Heroic forthrightness. Bold praying is Moses beckoning us in Psalms 8110. I'm the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I'll fill it. Bold praying is Jabez, all oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed, enlarge my coast. Bold praying is John Knox praying, give me Scotland or else I die. We see our human frailty, we have times of need. We see heroic forthrightness, come boldly before the throne of grace as we close. Notice a holy favor and are done. 
What happens when you come to the throne of grace? Will he repel you? Will he kick you away? Will he push you off? Will he tell you you're not wanted? Will he tell you you're not loved? Hey, I got good news. No, 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 no. Amen? Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. And by the way, the psalmist said his tender mercies are great. They're new every morning. Listen, so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, the first thing we need sometimes is not the answer we're looking for. We just need the grace of God to wrap us in His arms. And that's the context He's using there. This, this word help is a very interesting word. The word help is only used twice in the New Testament Scriptures. It's used here in Acts 27. And the word help is a nautical term. It's a, it's a term that mariners who go on boats out, out in the ocean understand. And what a help was back in those days was because all the ships were made out of wood and they were handcrafted and, 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 and hammered in together, they knew that it being on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, out in those, those choppy waters, depending on the time of the year, that the water's pounding against that and the, and, the, and the height and the cold and the salt water and all those things would cause the nails eventually to come out and rust and they would pop out. In the midst of a storm, they knew that as the waters would be crashing on that ship, if they had not carefully watched out for things, that the boat could start coming apart. It would literally fall apart in the middle of the ocean there. And that could be a very scary thing. And so what they did, they improvised years ago. They created what they called helps. And helps would be these large... Large, large rope cables, larger than I'm opening my hands, large, large rope cables that men were specifically trained that when, when they got into a storm that was very difficult to prevent the ship from falling apart, when they knew the waves were coming in and things were happening, they, these men basically were trained. Some would jump in the water and be held by rope. They would tie the rope around the ship. They would tie the rope tightly around the ship. They would take those cables, as they were called, and they would wrap those cables around the ship and tie it very closely on both ends so that the ship wouldn't come apart. Listen, here's what God's telling us. He's using a nautical term to describe what God does for you and me when the trial is so difficult and the problem is so great and the sorrow is going to make you burst and the heartbreak you feel like. You feel like nobody knows what's going on. Here's when we come boldly before the throne of grace. God comes around you and he wraps his wonderful loving arms around us and he gives us grace to help in time. You know what he's doing there? When he, that help is God riding his grace around you and me so that we don't come apart like a ship would come apart. So you don't fall apart during that time. You don't get the, you don't give the devil the glory. You're giving God the glory saying, let God come around me. It's just letting God love you. It's letting God put his arms around you. It's letting God show you. He wants you to draw close to him. And listen, those, that grace to help in time of need is God putting his arm around you saying, son, it's okay. It's okay. And that's a holy favor. He gives us grace to help in time of need. Why should I pray? Because you need that grace to help in time of need. Why should I get saved? Because you need that grace to help in time of need. This morning, we find ourselves drifting, we find ourselves in dullness, we find ourselves in doubtfulness, we may even find ourselves with despitefulness, and God forbid, we may even find ourselves in a place of defiance. But let's hold fast our profession. Let's get our eyes on our powerful representative. Have a practical resolve. Christian, are you trying to solve your problems? Well, you've got a promise here. Come boldly before the throne of grace. You're trying to solve it yourself. Our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You come to the Lord. God, I need you right now. Please help me. He'll give you grace to help in time of need. You need to get saved this morning. You need to experience His grace first to save your soul.
Let go of your shyness. Let go of your excuses. Meet me at the old-fashioned altar this morning. Say, Preacher, I need to get saved this morning. I need my sins forgiven and washed away. You need to get baptized. You are saved, but you need to get baptized. The whole fast to profess your faith. I want you to get lined up. We've got seven people lined up over the next few days. You need to be one of those. Go fast and profess your faith. And tell this body of Christ, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I want the rest of the brothers and sisters to know Christ is in my heart. God's moving this morning. As he prompts your heart. You come today. Come boldly. Don't come with reservation. Come boldly. Because that's how God wants us to come. Our Father, this morning, would you please help us this late? And you let our folks go. But you help us this morning to respond to you this hour. That the power of God would come down. Lord, just as I've experienced the last few days, those cables of grace wrapping itself around me, and help in time of need. There's some brothers and sisters who need to ex- experience that today. There's some of us today who need to make that prompt, be prompt of responsibility. We need to take a bold stand for Jesus. Hold fast our profession of faith like Timothy did, who witnessed a good profession before many witnesses. And as Jesus did with a good witness before Pontius Pilate. then, Lord, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on you. The Son of God who's sinless, the Son of God who sympathizes, the Son of God who is our substitute, the Son of God who's sovereign. And they realize in our frailty, we are, we're needy people. We are greatly in need of you, Lord, this morning. I pray this morning folks would accept the invitation. Your heads bowed and eyes closed. Are you saved this morning? Have you experienced, have you received God's grace to save you from your sins? If you haven't, this church and myself invite you today with loving arms as our Savior to come to that throne, which right now, if you're not saved, is a throne of judgment. And accept His mercy and His grace to save you so that throne will be a throne of grace. Who would say this morning, Pastor Fong, I'm not 100% sure I'm saved, going to heaven, and I'm a son of God, but I want to know what you pray for me. You'd raise your hand in boldness this morning and say, pray for me, Pastor. I want to know for sure I'm saved and going to heaven. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that? Well, wait just a moment. Would you raise your hand and say, preacher, pray for me. I want to be sure I'm saved and going to heaven. Raise your hand, please. You know you need to get saved. Don't wait. Don't be timid and shy. That throne is a throne that receives you, not repels you. How many Christians say this morning, God hit the button in my life. God hit the button in my life. I've got a need. God had to change my thinking in my heart this morning to realize I need to come to that throne of grace today. I need to realize I need to come boldly. I need to take a stand for Jesus. I need to have a resolve in my heart to make a right profession of faith. You'd say, pray for me today that I'll be a good witness for Jesus. Pray for me, Pastor. Amen? 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 Pray for me that I'll be a good witness, that I have a good profession. How many of us would stop being shy and timid and hiding behind our excuses? Say, I'm going to stand up for Jesus. Raise your hands. Say, I'm going to stand with Jesus this morning. Amen? Now this morning we'll give the invitation. Our men are here. They'll take you and receive you just as you are and pray with you. Don't delay. Don't wait for someone else. Be bold for Jesus. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall my heavenly Father confess before the angels which are in heaven. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Confess him this morning. Please have your way in this invitation. Lift our burdens, our needs, our concerns. Save souls here today who need to be saved. Move us from the place of indifference and lethargy to the place of activity and service for God. God, have your way. Enough has been said. We give you the invitation now. Please help folks to feel inclined to come and to just commit to the Lord whatever's on their heart. We give this to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Please stand with me with your heads bowed and eyes closed. And we invite you this morning to come before the Lord. If you have something you need to talk to us about, come. You need prayer. 
the Lord's worked on your heart about being a good witness, why don't you come and tell the Lord about it? Let's be steadfast in our profession. Okay, we don't need a bunch of timid people. We need folks on fire for God. You come this morning. Just as I am. Just come like you are. Come boldly. Come boldly. It's a nick of time. You got a burden, problem? Come boldly. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly now. Say, Jesus, I, I've not been a good witness, but I want to be a good witness. Why don't you come? Come this morning. Take that next step. You're not saved. Get saved today. You are saved. How about take that next step of believer's baptism? You come today. We're here to love you. The throne of grace does not repel you. The throne of grace accepts you. But you come today. We'll sing another stanza. You come. Don't wait. Don't wait. This might be your last time. I had no idea last last night when I left. That was the last time I'd see my dad in this world. I'm saying this morning, you don't know when your last breath may be. I don't know when it may be. We need to come. Would you come this morning? Life is real. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts. It's a lot to ask someone to step out of their comfort zone and say, I need God's help. Lord, help us this morning. If we got anything else, that we would have a resolve to come boldly to that throne of grace. We may receive grace to help in time of need. Please help someone here today who's suffering to feel those cables of grace wrapping itself around them and keeping them from falling apart. Lord, you've spoken. In a moment, dismiss it with your blessing. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat if you would where you're at. We're going to have you see a Connect video, and we look forward to just shaking your hand afterwards. And then Brother Rich will lead us in closing prayer this morning.